Good afternoon slash morning. Welcome to the Cowboys and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China Africa podcast. I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and I am joined by our loyal co-host, Lena Ben-Abdallah. Lena, how are you doing? Doing excellent. I'm excited for this. Excellent. I have a little bit of a cold, so if I sound uh, a little deeper or perhaps I'll have a more, I don't know, sultry voice, that is why. In any case, today's episode, as always, is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. We are continuing to discuss the Sixth Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, or FOCAC, for the rest of the month. FOCAC will be held in two weeks, December, well, two weeks, actually it will be held in one week, December 4th through 5th in Johannesburg, South Africa. For historical context, FOCAC was initiated in 2000 in Beijing in order to sketch out a three-year cooperation plan between China and the countries of Africa. Since then, the triennial meetings have alternated between China and African countries. This week, we will connect FOCAC to the idea of rising powers, what FOCAC means to South Africa, and what these summits do for China as a member of the Global South, the developing world, or whatever nomenclature you may prefer. Joining us today is Dr. Sven Grimm, a political scientist who has worked on external partners cooperation with Africa since 1999. He is a senior researcher and the coordinator of the Rising Powers Program at the German Development Institute, DIE, in Bonn. Since 2006, his research has focused on emerging economies' roles in Africa, and specifically China-Africa relations. He obtained his PhD from Hamburg University in 2002 with a thesis on EU-Africa relations. He has previously worked with the London-based Overseas Development Institute and was former head of the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, South Africa. Dr. Grimm, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much for having me. And if... If you may, could you please describe the contours of South African foreign affairs broadly and how FOCAC fits in? How much rising is South Africa doing as a rising power, and how does it relate to the other BRICs, or BRICs being Brazil, Russia, India, China, and now South Africa? That's quite a chunk of, uh, of a question there to, to deal with. Um, for South Africa, I would roughly see it having gone through three stages since it uh, abandoned the status of a pariah state and, and went back into the community of states, so since the end of apartheid. It's roughly three um, stages. You could see, say in very broad brush uh, approaches from middle power to African power to rising power. Um, the middle powers was the Mandela period, very much the honest broker, everybody's darling, trying to have good relations with everybody, establishing relations with everybody, joining every, any club you could, uh, and negotiating between bigger powers. And then Mbeki changed that discussion more to an African power, the discussion on African renaissance, uh, NEPAD and the African peer review mechanism was very much a South African initiation, uh, initiative. And then Zuma turned that slightly further and, and was more joining the rising powers game, probably coming from a about the, the experience of punching above your own weight as South Africa. 
Um, but also experiences internationally, I think, that have led to it. Some frustrations with processes with uh, other global powers, the Libya crisis, for instance, um, but also experiences where the African agenda didn't really kick off because it's very hard for South Africa to be accepted by other African powers as the African lead. Other Africans don't see that as a natural, uh, a natural thing. So it's, it's a bit of a continuation. Could you go into that a little more? Uh, I think it's, it's partly the wealth, but it's also the structure of South Africa being the only sizable industrialized country on the continent. Being a bit, I, it's very harsh to say it's self-delusion, but it's, it's been the last country to be liberated on the continent in a self-perspective. So, the liberation of Africa came to a conclusion with South Africa um, becoming a democratic state, defeating apartheid. Some countries might see that differently, mind you, but that's a South African perspective. And it's very much the only country that's of any sizable weight in the, in, on the globe. It's the only African country in the G20s, for instance. And so it sees itself as the natural lead for Africa. Um, other countries would have other criteria. Nigeria is bigger. Nigeria's economy is bigger. Uh, Ethiopia has a bigger pop- population and slightly different setting. Kenya has an equally, uh, well, not equally, but um, it, it's on good economic terms. So there are contestations of the South African role, and it's not as straightforward as South Africa might want to have it to be the only sizable African country. And I think from that perspective comes a bit of a uh, let's go broader than that because our ambitions are actually broader than the continent. We are fighting for the continent in these global fora. G20, South Africa claims to be the only African country. Other African countries in any conference you join would very quickly say, yes, you're in it, but you're not speaking for Africa. You speak for yourself. So I think that's a bit of the, the tension that the South Africans are trying to navigate. Wow. To connect this a little bit to sort of the China Africa, um, the China Africa relation, is is there anything you can say about um, um, South Africa's position with the debate on whether China Africa should be conducted on multilateral or bilateral uh, relations? Is do you see South Africa as more of an outlier in that sense, not necessarily benefiting more from the, the multilateral perspective, the platform? Or do you have anything to say about that? It's um, I'm not quite sure what to say about that because South Africa tries all channels and not just with China. They do mm. join um, the EU-Africa partnership, but they also have a strategic partners- partnership by themselves with the European Union. Right. So it's it's on those two levels. The same for China. They do have a comprehensive strategic partners- partnership with China. Um, but they're also part of FOCAC, obviously, and uh, they are very active in the African Union. So it's a bit of trying to mm-hmm. see where openings are and where, as a South African um, policymaker, you find a, a place that you can use or you can have a slightly open door that you can put your foot in, so to, so to say. Mm-hmm. Is, is organizing um, uh, being host of this summit? perhaps um, looked at as an opportunity for 
more of a an improved perception of South Africa as sort of the natural lead in a sense or I think that's one of the expectations or one of the hopes on the South African side, yes. It's not the first African country to host the summit, um, but obviously that gives you a bit more leverage. The Chinese, the, the South Africans have always, when they have a BRICS summit, when they had that, they also had an outreach group and uh, consulted with other African states beforehand. Mm -hmm. But uh, to them, it was a very much of a... a, 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 a reaching out to other countries and trying to bring them on board and trying to foster an African agenda. And in other African countries, it was sometimes a bit seen as a bit condescending or as a we are the second tier and you try to be the first tier. So there is some rivalry mm -hmm. and tension that you can't negotiate away, however well-intended the South African side might be in this African agenda. If we could bring this a little bit back to, to the BRICS, how does South Africa relate to the other BRICs? Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, one, are the BRICs a cohesive enough unit that that they that they operate together on any given big geopolitical stage? And two, do they consider South Africa a, a an equal, a partner? It's an interesting one because it comes from different perspectives. From a South African side, South Africa makes perfect sense in the BRICs because it's the only African country, so it completes a regional uh, representation. It is the only sizable economy, advanced sizable economy on the African continent. As I say, you can contest that, but that's their self-perspective. So it's a very natural partner in it. And they're very much aware that they are the smallest uh, BRICS by far. But there is also an idea of what the BRICS are that is very specific to South Africa. And it's somehow hoovering around in the debate it's not quite clear. My understanding, my feeling was that it very often is South African debates see the BRICS as the other OECD, whereas countries like China would actually see the BRICS as the other G7. <laughs> and that makes a, a huge difference mm -hmm. in terms of how you organize yourself and what your expectation, expectations to that grouping and to that club is. And I think to some extent the South Africans are hoping for way more than the Chinese, for instance, are willing to give or the Russians are willing to give. And India and Brazil have their own agendas that also not quite fit there. So it's a, it's a very interesting perspective to see how perceptions can actually influence how much you want to join a club and, and maybe you have joined a club that isn't quite what you expect to be. Very, very astute observation. Um, yeah, so it, it's 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 very interesting to kind of talk about the the competition within also uh, BRICS members, right? Uh, and to relate this to the summit diplomacy, uh, our next question uh, is: um, So, uh, what is it ne necessarily this time that you um, see China looking for uh, in terms of uh, hosting, you know, the the, the FOCAC? at a summit level um, this time. And I especially want to put this in the context of the several articles we have uh, read and seen so far circling about uh, Chinese investments um, kind of falling, uh, Chinese investments in Africa decreasing, and um, you know some of these anxieties around um, you know, the, 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 the uh, fall in the, in, in the figures of Chinese investments in Africa. So, um, you know, the question would be, what do, what, what's your assessment of, um, you know, what's, what, what the summit is going to bring to China-Africa relations? 
in this sense? Uh, I would say that we, I mean, the, the Chinese are discussing their new normal, which means growth at around 7% or slightly below that and not above. And I think the, the, the FOCAC summit actually means the new normal in China-Africa relations. Mm-hmm. You will see more promises. You will see some promises that are actually bundled together that might not necessarily be fresh money or very new initiatives, but you put it in this FOCAC context and you present it in a FOCAC context. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that the, the, the deepening and the broadening of the relations is without any limitations. And I think that this FOCAC might be one step to realize that there's a sort of a normal, normalization of China-Africa relations and the big, big hopes and uh, exaggerated expectations on the African continent and the exaggerated fears in the West are actually coming to a more realistic and more normal perception. They're actually difficult topics that surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just think of uh, the topic of poaching and how there's a corporation or there's no, a little, uh, too little cooperation on uh, fighting the trafficking in ivory and rhino horn, very difficult discussion mm-hmm. and something where the South African debate, particularly the civil society discussion, mm-hmm. is markedly different from the Chinese government's perspective in the past. And you've seen some movement on the Chinese side, but it probably will will be a bit of a, as I say, it's a difficult topic that comes up all of a sudden. It's not the honeymoon period where you just uh, walk hand in hand and everything is fantastic. Yet... This being a summit, obviously every participant want to portray it, wants to portray it as a, as a success and therefore will emphasize the good friendship and mutual trust and understanding. And uh, so there's a rhetoric side and there's a substance side. And I think the rhetoric will be as grand and fantastic as ever. And the, the, the substance side will be good, will be substantial increases, but, um, you can see a bit of a, uh, 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 the, the curve is not as steep anymore, I would say. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of natural in the sense that the China-Africa relations are kind of entering a phase of more looking at the quality, not necessarily just the quantity, right? So it's sort of a necessary transition from, you know, the past perhaps five years or so where where most of the focus is on, um, you know, how many projects or how many deals you know that, that we can talk about now it's now we see more and more talks about quality you see a lot of civil society groups that are trying to engage on topics as you said about the environment or about um, um, smuggling or about these these issues that um, come up in the sense of of, of of a new phase of the relationship where it's it's kind of normal to start having these uncomfortable, you know, conversations around these things. So, And not all of them have to be uncomfortable, but I do think it's a normalization. I, do, I also hear it from Chinese colleagues who say we have to manage it a bit more in terms of context. Uh, the mm-hmm. content that we are doing is not just another 50 hospitals and another 150 mm-hmm. uh, agricultural administra- demonstration centers, but it's the question of, the health policy or the, the health environment and the agricultural environment. The Chinese side start pushing a lot more now for um, the uh, investment environment, as they say it. I mean, that's mm-hmm. 
that's not yet the the discussion that Africa would have with Western countries about governance, but it's getting into that direction. It's a slightly different twist to it. It's mm-hmm. less intrusive, but there are certainly also demands from the Chinese side, mm-hmm. and not least so. And I think that was the, the hope with South Africa as a host, um, a more proactive uh, side, more proactive demands from Africa, if you want. Give us plans. The Chinese side is grappling with uh, the emphasis on a demand-driven aid, but you don't quite know what the demand is. Therefore, what they want is the big plan that they can link to and have their contribution to. And I think that's something that the African side really is needs to work on and where more push from the Chinese side is coming. Yeah, it's very interesting to, to talk about this uh, demand-driven aid and and to connect this to the previous point we kind of touched upon, I mean, where, what, what is a, what is an African agenda in this sense? Uh, uh, is this something that is hoped to be reached multilaterally or bilaterally? Is it something that, you know, is it African leaders are going to sit down and discuss these things? I mean, I've, 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 I've kind of always, you know, uh, been interested in this question about where does consensus come from in this. Um, you know, do we need a vision when we talk about, you know, what kind of demand, you know, does Africa have in this sense, um, not just from China, but as you mentioned, also from any, any, any other partners. It could be Turkey, it could be India, it could be anybody. I think it's different levels again. I mean, the African side would probably say we have an agenda 2063, which means 100 years after the foundation of the Organization for African Unity, where do we want to be? Mm-hmm. There are lots of elements in there that you could uh, try to refine, define a bit more in detail, define steps and 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 uh, uh, landmarks, uh, roadmarks that you want to actually um, uh, milestones, sorry, milestones that you want to reach in the process. That is lacking at the moment. So it's the big grand uh, mm-hmm. idea and you don't quite know how to get from here to where you want to be in 2063. That's at least one element that the Chinese mm-hmm. can link to. But I think they're also uh, trying mo- to look more at the, the sub uh, regional level. So um, if if you invest in a big project in Kenya, why do you have to then go to Uganda and Tanzania and discuss similar things with them? Mm-hmm. Why don't you just, as Africans, present this as, say, we want a railroad, net, railroad network in East Africa, and here are the different stops that we want to have there, and this is how you can engage as a Chinese. So it actually would make their life easier than to easier. engage with mm-hmm with 54 different countries. So I think there's a bit of both. The Chinese Mm -hmm. side initially was very wary that the Africans would speak with one voice and thereby, by outnumbering China Mm -hmm. so massively, actually push them against the wall and say, we want this from you and you do this. And over time, they've realized that that, that what they get is the opposite. It's a, uh, it's a cacophony of different uh, leaders who want different things and it's a bit more this, okay, we have to get more sorted and organized and give us a big plan, please, and not 54 different ones. Uh, so it's a bit of a learning experience in this relationship, and I think it's actually very it's very good that there's a normalization because the expectations on, on both sides are becoming a bit clearer. Mm-hmm. Realistic and clearer. Mm-hmm. And it, it's also something for our, our listeners to take note of, the the amount of agency that African governments have in their dealings with China, and we emphasize this a lot, but China wants to deal with countries that know what they want and tell 
Chinese companies and Chinese agencies what they want. It's much more preferable. And in China, the way it, it balances its own different um, competing interests within China and, and within Chinese operations overseas, it, it the, the things that oil companies want might be different than the things that road companies want, which might be different than what the Ministry of Commerce wants. And, um, and having African partners that are on the same page, essentially, makes things a lot easier for China and, and could be argued beneficial for citizens of African countries as well. Uh, nobody likes to be pushed around. I mean, uh, the conflict obviously is if your partner wants something else than you want. But it's also difficult, that's the other side of the coin, it's also difficult to say we are only demand-driven and we only do what our partner wants us to do when you don't know what your partner really wants from you. So um, it's a bit of both. What we've, what, what I've seen in, in uh, various countries is that the Chinese side doesn't react too badly on pressure when a country has a very clear idea, a clear, very clear vision. And when it says, look, these are the projects that we want from you. I've seen it in uh, in Rwanda, for instance, where the Rwandan government tries to push the Chinese side as much as they push Western uh, donors. And they give them a list and say, these are the projects that we would like you to to come into. And please only pick from that list. Don't come with other ideas. Very nice to have any other thing, but this is what we want now, and this is our priority. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese side initially was a bit nonplussed about it and was a bit puzzled that they said we give you for we, we give you as a grant a road from A to B, and the Rwandan side said thank you very much, but we don't want it. That was a bit surprising as a reaction, mm-hmm. but I think it is actually easier also for the Chinese side to know. This is what the Rwandans want. Here's how we can engage, and here's how we can make a meaningful impact on on growth there, and actually then see where our interest is and where our benefit is in that. This mutual benefit assumes that both sides know what their respective benefit should be. It's very tedious if you then have to think about the mutual benefit on one side, and you have to think the mutual. Uh, that makes it very difficult for <laughs> policymakers, actually. And... Do you expect FOCAC to actually result in clearer policy-making goals on the part of African countries or groups of African countries in terms of these sorts of future engagements? Not necessarily in terms of clearer goals of African governments, because unless you have a plan already and bring that to the table in negotiations, with the Chinese and FOCAC or any other round, it will be very difficult to just do it as a reaction to an outside partner that you have. So you have to come up with a plan on your own and then you can bring that to the table to whichever partner you talk to. Maybe there's a little bit more pressure now that the the Chinese side does not resemble that candy store anymore. So you can't just come in and say we want this, that and something else and they put something on top because they want to be friends with you. Mm-hmm. It's also the question on return of, of investment. It's a question of what, how do, what do we get out of it and I think it's very sensible on a Chinese side uh, to discuss it from that perspective, not just because of the rhetoric of win-win but also because there are challenges within China if your growth is slowing that China, the, the Chinese Africa engagement has never been completely uncontested by the um, Chinese population, at least. Mm-hmm. Why do we give aid to countries that are um, sometimes even on, uh, richer than we are um, per capita? Um, so 
coming to that understanding and, and coming to an understanding that you would have to present a clear plan might help, but it will not create the only reason why you come up with a clear strategy. Very good points. Since the first FOCAC in 2000, have you seen a shift in how China or South Africa have dealt with other rising powers? Are there any lessons learned for dealing with Brazil, Russia, or India? It's still moving, I think, and it's still not quite clear. There are f always new policy uh, ideas that we have. I mean, there are p new initiatives that we have seen. More recently, the Silk Road Initiative, uh, One Belt, One Road, it's called Obor in China, um, that includes a maritime Silk Road, which very much has uh, clear ideas about the or clear interests expressed in the Indian Ocean. Uh, and that obviously overlaps with Indian interest in the ocean that was named after them. Uh, so how that plays out and how that actually has an impact on BRICS, I don't know. Uh, it probably will make it a lot more pragmatic and definitely means that that idea of the other OECD is a bit... Uh, far-fetched from a South African side. But you do have tensions between countries. They rise, they go away, they ebb down. Uh, I, I'm, I mean, you have cycles in it, and I wouldn't overestimate it. It comes and goes, and the Chinese are extremely pragmatic in their policy-making and pragmatic in a positive way in terms of what is best for them, but also how do they get halfway undamaged out of the situation. Let's hope that that's the case for the Indian Ocean and specifically for the South China Sea and in the overall picture for the Chinese side. And and I just want to let our listeners know we do not subscribe to the if it's named after you, it's yours notion. Of uh, no, I don't want to imply that, sorry, for the South maritime China Maritime ownership. <laughs> <laughs> No, I wouldn't subscribe to that. I was joking with it. A little yeah, bit. I, uh, it's obviously a very Indian perception to say it's the Indian Ocean. Uh, I wouldn't subscribe to that either. I think the Kenyans have their own ideas about it, and clearly the South Africans would also have ideas about uh, the interest in that area. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Lena, anything else before we move to recommendations? Um, no, this is this is this has been really good. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Grimm, do you want to say any parting words before we move on? Um, not necessarily more on content. I think we've discussed very different angles, and it was a very good discussion. Thank you very much. Um, we will have on, on our website, we will have a commentary out on uh, FOCAC and what our expectations are towards the outcome of FOCAC on Monday. And people know my Twitter account, I hope, and can follow me on that, at Grim underline Sven. And there will be more on the discussion on rising powers, and I try to tweet as much as I see from various debates, not just my own ideas on that. Dr. Grim, you have a surprisingly strong Twitter account for an academic. Thank you very much. <laughs> and do you have any recommendations for our listeners? There's definitely, if you're interested in China-Africa relations, there are plenty mm -hmm. of different websites mm -hmm. and podcasts and uh, sources that you can find and uh, Twitter accounts. One thing mm -hmm. that immediately comes to my mind is the China-Africa reporting project by Witz University in Johannesburg. 
and uh, they have a very good website uh, on which you can see different sources, uh, which gives you a, a broader perspective and very much also a South African angle uh, on China-Africa relations. So that would be very helpful in that in this specific regard. Mm-hmm. Tremendous. Lena, do you have any recommendations? I would say um, I just came across a an interesting um, piece from the Institute for Security Studies. Um, it does definitely relate to the China-Africa relations. Um, the piece is titled Rebalancing an Unbalanced Relationship. Um, it also sort of uh, gets into these uh, questions of FOCAC and what's expected to be talked uh, in FOCAC. And, um, and so it, 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 it's a nice piece that I think uh, goes well with the conversation we're having. So Tremendous. Uh, I myself have a recommendation based on the somewhat breaking news of China's facility in Djibouti. I wouldn't go as far as calling it a base. And it's a, uh, a blog post by Andrew S. Erickson. It, the, it's titled U.S. AFRICOM Commander General David Rodriguez. USA confirms China signed 10-year contract for military logistics hub in Djibouti, Beijing's first ever overseas base slash facility. And it's just a, a good historical rundown of Chinese maritime operations in the Gulf of Aden uh, and sort of if you have any questions about the base or it's going to be a logistics hub for now not I'm, I don't even really call it a base there some really good background um, it's prop I believe it's confirmed that it will not be in Obak um, I don't actually know how to pronounce that so if anybody's listening and knows the correct pronunciation let me know uh, but a lot of people are saying it's going to be in Obak, uh, but Leslie Ann Warner uh, confirmed it's not going to be there. And yes, uh, security, I imagine, will be a topic at FOCAC, and this facility will will be will be part of that discussion, I'm sure. And Lena, how do people find you on the internet? Um, so my Twitter account, um, so my handle is uh, L Ben Abdallah. Um, so that's the easiest way to find me on the internet. Excellent. And you also recently wrote a really strong FOCAC piece for Africa as a country, is that correct? That is correct, yes. Would we be able to find you through that piece? Absolutely. And do you know the name of the piece off the top of your head that I will link to? Um, right, so it's, um, is the one country, one continent um, a good strategy? Very, very appropriate title for that website. And I myself can be found on cowriesrice.blogspot.com and www.cowriesrice.com, the latter site housing my fledgling China Africa consultancy. In addition, my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R, and I tweet about China Africa news, events, opinions, and arcana. And that is about it for today's episode. We would like to thank Dr. Grimm for joining us this afternoon and slash morning. As well as African Development Jobs, this podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Double Twist, and iTunes. We are also teaming up with WTND Community Radio for Macomb, Illinois, to share a podcast. We would also like to thank Mighty Michael Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.